Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Ben O'Rourke to the show. Ben is a retired Marine lieutenant colonel, a combat veteran, a graduate of the U.S. Army War College, and he currently serves as an executive for an enterprise tech company in Los Angeles. A graduate of Notre Dame, Ben served on active duty for six years in peacetime deployments before leaving to join the East Coast startup world just prior to the dot-com bubble of 2001. He got the acting bug while working in New York, moved out to L.A., joined the Marine Corps Reserves, and started graduate school all just before 9-11. That defining event would ultimately lead him into active combat in Iraq, which is something he'll be sharing about with us today. I met Ben after this moment when he had returned home from the war, and we joined the same acting class. I'm thrilled to be back in touch with him after so long, and I'm honored that he's willing to share his story with me today. Welcome to the show, Ben! Thank you, Nick. It's so good to be here. You know, I've been talking about this for a long time, and very excited to connect with you today. And I want to applaud you for the work that you're doing with this podcast. I love how thoughtful and how intimate these conversations are. And just in listening to the podcast as you launched it, it's been a real source of joy and insight for me leading up to today. Thank you very much, Ben. That's very sweet. Well, I can't wait to hear your story, man. But first, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? What did I have for breakfast this morning? I prepared for this question. and I wanted to be able to say something really cool. I had a veggie omelet from this awesome cafe, which is right by my office here in Palos Verdes, California, called the Yellow Vase. Ooh. And I added a little bit of uh, Trader Joe's grass-fed sirloin to it for a little extra protein. And my guilty pleasure, and this is going to sound really pretentious, espresso with vanilla ghee in it. What is vanilla ghee? Ghee is a clarified butter. I just recently researched this. Um, that also has use in Hindu and Buddhist religious ceremonies, but it's a very healthy fat for you. I feel like now I have heard about this. It's all the rage in biohacking circles these days. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, what a phrase. That's great. Do you feel properly hacked? Biologically? I do feel properly hacked. I feel like I've got some extra brain energy going as a result of the healthy fat. Um, And I'm ready to go. Ben, how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Well, I was introduced to the idea of God growing up as as a kid. I mean, my family, we didn't, you know, when you hear people talk about Catholicism, frequently we hear people talk about Catholic guilt or the dogma. And I was very, very lucky not to have that. I didn't have the fear of eternal damnation or this guilt of sin, it was an embrace of family and joy and participating in these rituals together. Like, I just remember as being a really young kid, maybe six or seven, and my mom told me that God is in everything, that God is in all of us, God is in the trees, God is is everywhere. And if you look at that from a really theological, dogmatic standpoint, you know, the Catholic church may not teach that to be true. We have a relationship with God, but I felt that in my daily life. And I remember laying on the front lawn of our rural suburban Michigan home, just looking up at the clouds and looking up at the trees and just feeling this sense of God in everything, whatever or whoever God is. As I went to Notre Dame, I, I gained some exposure to comparative theology. And what I found is I, as I really studied that and became acquainted with other religions was this fundamental shift in my thinking, which was the function of the spiritual practice isn't for me to serve the church or the religion or the organization. It's ultimately to serve my personal journey and to activate things within me to enable me as an individual or you, Nick, as an individual in your spiritual journey. 
So over the years, I've found myself not needing to draw from those symbols and that practice as much as I did when I was younger. But there are certainly times when in very difficult situations where I find comfort and strength and do draw on those practices. And at the same time, the exposure to other faith traditions and as Joseph Campbell would call them, mythologies, I've been able to look at other practices from other religions. My parents had no idea how they would pay for me to go to Notre Dame. Hmm. And I was very lucky. My father sat me down and he introduced me to the idea of an ROTC scholarship. It was energizing for me. The leadership, the physical fitness, I felt this synthesis of, of all of the skills that I wanted to be good at that I could apply in this single domain. I couldn't be a professional athlete. I couldn't be a competitive college athlete, but I could be a really good Marine second lieutenant. One thing that we decided we're not going to talk too much about because this is your peacetime deployment stuff, but you served for six years right after college, right? Yeah, I was selected for a job specialty that I really didn't want, which is logistics. I wanted to be an infantry ground combat officer. And just the way that job assignments go, you, you don't necessarily get much of a choice. And so I was heartbroken. My big dreams of being a lifelong Marine officer and general and combat leader and all of that, I thought were dashed because I was in more of a support role. Mm. But I was still with an infantry ground combat battalion. And during that time, deployed all over the world. So now you've had six years of peacetime deployments. You're still in the logistics side of things. So you, you've come to embrace that avenue of your military existence. Is that true? No, I mean, and that's the main reason why I got out after six years. Oh, wow. You know, I didn't want to do a career in the Marines in a job specialty that I wasn't passionate about. So I was able to, to get a job with an East Coast tech startup. A friend of mine from the Marines had gone to, to start this company. And during that time, I just had this growing hobby. And I started taking the train into New York City, started Chicken around, long-form improv classes at Upright Citizens Brigade. And that led to me taking a Meisner course with Larry Silverberg in New York City and really starting to think, okay, how do I leave my current job and try to pursue a creative career professionally? So first, I'm leaving New York in September, late August. I'm driving my crappy 85 Volvo station wagon cross country. Hmm. And I look up in the rear view mirror and I see the twin towers and I think to myself, Oh, I forgot to get to the twin towers. Hmm. And my exact thought at that moment was they'll always be there. I'll see it next time. Hmm. So I get out to Los Angeles. The first thing I do is I join my reserve unit. Now in the reserves, even though I was a logistics officer on active duty, which I didn't want to do, I had this opportunity to join an infantry reserve unit and serve as an infantry officer. And it was the main reason why I joined the reserves. My exact thinking at that point was, it will be fun to play Marine one weekend a month. You're play acting. You're thinking, this is the play acting right. where I get to be the Marine. I'll go to Meisner class and that's where the play acting is where I'm whatever character. You know, I just, I was energized by the idea of one weekend a month, I can go to Camp Pendleton. I can go out to the field. I can lead a platoon of Marines. I can do all the things that I enjoy to do with the Marines, and it's not my full-time job. I can do other things as well. And so my first weekend in L.A., I was so excited. I got cast in a play, and I have this very small role, but I'm with this company, and I'm learning how a play is put up. And I would sit backstage as I was getting ready to go on and just hear all of the different moments and all of the twists and turns and my scene was right before a pivotal moment. And almost every night I think, is the pivotal moment, the pivotal bad moment that's about to happen after my scene going to happen this time? Because hmm. they sound so connected. Maybe they, can, maybe they can avert this disaster that's about to happen. It was such a wonderful, alive experience. I mean, you know, it's funny to hear you say that. I'm struck because I, I don't want to be melodramatic here, but there is an experience that happens 
right after that in reality? Well, so 9-11 happened. And at that moment, I knew my reserve unit was going to be activated. How do you know that? No one told me. I just knew. I, I knew that, that something was going to happen with us. Hmm. Well, I knew that this is a significant global event and that I felt that the reserves would be called up. But even if they weren't, I just had a mental commitment that I was going to go wherever this took us. You see, you would have gone. This is not a story about I was doing something else. This is a story that, like, in a way, you did get what you wanted. Once that happened and you knew that they were going to be calling for people like you, whether they were going to call you or not, you knew you'd step up. I knew I would step up. There are all sorts of characters in the military. There are people with a lot of bravado and a lot of gusto. It's, it's like that, that sentence, you know, if not me, then who else? Mm. Like, I felt a deep-seated commitment and obligation that if we were sending people into harm's way at the scale at which I thought we would as a result of 9-11, then I felt an obligation to be a part of that. That I was better suited, not because of skill or talent, but because I was a late 20-something young officer who was not married, who didn't have a family, who had was not leaving much behind to serve. Hmm. Ben, that's where we're going to hang up the first section, okay? All right. We'll be back in just a minute. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. And so, Ben, you get cast in this role. Two days later, 9-11 happens. So what happens in there? What is that like? It was a really magical experience for me to do that play. It forced a significant amount of reflection. Every night that I'd be backstage ready to go on for this, I would think to myself, what if this is it? What if this is the apex of this acting dream? Wow. What if I don't come back? What if this old dream, this old aspiration of being an infantry officer is it? And this is the only moment that I get to experience this pursuit of creating or acting. And every time I would have those thoughts and every moment before I would go on, I would think to myself, I'm okay with that. Wow. And you're in uniform. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in a, um, a dress uniform that was worn by the, uh, by Marines in World War II. And so it was, it was very, you know, it's one of those things that it felt very real to me and very magical and very transcendent. Yeah. You know, not just being on stage, but this intersection of stage and life. Yeah, that's an extraordinary synthesis of reality and play. It's really quite amazing that it timed out that way. And it's really quite amazing that that you understand that every moment might be the last kind of this moment that you'll ever have. I mean, is it just an instant living in the present? Yeah, it really is. And the journey from post 9-11, just before activating, to activation, to the actual experience of combat, that presence in the moment, really that adoption 
and assimilation of the mindset, the, the stoic philosophy, memento mori, all men must die. Remember, you will die. That sense becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And I, I wasn't feeling it quite the level of intensity that I did by the time I was in combat. But it was beginning to take hold. And I guess that those acting moments awakened it. It made me really reflect on it. So take us from here. Where do you want to go? What do you want to tell us? So I went to this excruciating school called Infantry Officer Course. And that was a unique experience because I was 30 years old and all of my classmates there were in their early 20s. And so physically, it was extremely demanding. And then I spent most of the summer of 2002 in the desert in 29 Palms, living out of a pack, training to deploy to Iraq. And so my responsibility was I was the weapons platoon commander. And I was in charge of mortars, machine guns, anti-tank rockets, explosives, and then coordinating fire support, which would be calling in air, artillery, helicopters, all of that stuff. And so I spent all this time in the desert in this very, very austere way of life of sleeping in the wind in the desert, getting up, training with these complex heavy weapon systems. And then sitting out the heat in the afternoon, dealing with the bees in the evening, getting some more training in as it cooled off, and then going to bed. And so it just really hardened me and brought that focus mentality. And the most difficult thing about that year was that growing sense that we were going to war. And I felt like a ghost in life outside of the Marine Corps. Meaning I felt that as I was out with my friends who were not in the military and were were going out to dinner and in bars and like, I couldn't enjoy any of it because I would go do things to be social. But in my mind was, I need to train harder. There is an event that is coming sometime and none of my aspirations continue unless I get through that event. How many opportunities would you have to even go out? I mean, did you get weekends off or something? Yeah. Being on active duty military isn't super restrictive. You, you know, usually you go to the field and train and do tactical activities Monday through Friday. It's crazy because so then you must be dealing with all kinds of different personalities that handle this situation differently, right? There's like some people that are, they're going super hard on the weekends. Yeah. They're trying to soak in life because they're seeing it as... Maybe this is my last opportunity to do that here. And then there's people like you that are going, I'm not here. I'm not present here because maybe my future isn't here. Maybe there won't be a future here. Even maybe just to protect yourself mentally. Yeah. And it wasn't so much like concern about my own personal future. One of the the great hallmarks of military leadership and the Marine Corps is as an officer, I was responsible for 66 Marines. Hmm. My job is to bring all of them home safe. Mm, mm -hmm. Their lives are my responsibility. And so my failure to train, my failure to be the best physical condition I can possibly be, my failure to master tactics in the ins and outs of weapon systems, to understand Iraqi tactics, to know everything cold, could end up with one of those young Marines getting killed. Wow. And, and it's not just my responsibility to those young Marines. They're married. They have kids. And they're not all young either. I mean, my right-hand man, my platoon sergeant, was 37 years old with a wife and two kids. Hmm. There's this whole constellation of people around these 66 Marines who love them and care for them. And my job is to go and do whatever we're going to do and get everyone home safely. Wow. It's heavy, right? I mean, we haven't even gotten to the shit yet, but I mean, it's like, it's yeah. heavy. It's, it's, it's so, um, I'm just following along, man. I'm in it. So tell me what's next. Yeah. We were activated with the first Marine division. We were extended and we deployed immediately to Kuwait. I actually got the call at my grandparents' house in Fort Wayne, Indiana, while we were celebrating Christmas and sat down with my uncles and my grandfather and my cousins, and we all drank some Jamesons, and I was ready to go. 
uh, ready to get back to California and deploy. How did your family take it? They were worried, you know, obviously very scared. I know that it was extremely difficult for my parents. And I'll, I'll tell about what they went through when we crossed the line of departure into Iraq. One story that my mom says is that they were glued to the news. Sure. And one night, a big group of their friends and my aunts and uncles came to their house and they said, turn off the TV. We're taking you out to dinner. They hadn't seen any of their friends for a few weeks while the invasion was going on. Wow. But you were called and you're just like mentally you're ready. You're off. Yeah. This journey the theme that I wrestle with is this idea of how do we live in, in extremist moments? We all have to be awake to the fact that we are going to experience loss. We are going to experience pain. We're going to experience tragedy in some way. And how do we embrace when that happens? How do we embrace it for what it is, as awful and as terrible as it is? So take me there. Take me to what it's like to go deeper and deeper into an in extremist moment. Well, the, the first day, the first night was preparing to deploy. And it was such a grueling long day of all of the logistical things of getting weapons, of getting packed, of getting everyone's gear moved. And I just remember I had to get all of my stuff out of this little dorm room that I was staying in at Camp Pendleton and just working tirelessly to get this all done before finally, at the end of the night, my platoon was the last one to get in the buses to go to March Air Force Base to get in the planes. And I walked onto the parade deck where all the Marines were assembled. Their families are still there. And I just remember thinking to myself, as I'm watching these goodbyes from afar, my brother came out to, to hang out with me. My parents weren't there for this departure, but watching this from afar and seeing children with their fathers, hmm. parents nervously with their hands on their young son's shoulders who are about to deploy. And I just remember thinking in my head, I have to get them all home. Hmm. I promise I'm going to get them all home. I didn't say that out loud. And after the entire experience, I realized what a vain thing that was to say. And what I learned as, we, as I went through this journey into combat was that it wasn't up to me, that there are so many things beyond control. And so from there, we left, we started in Kuwait, and we, we moved slowly closer and closer to the border of Iraq. And we finally reached the point when we were crossing the line of departure, crossing the border, getting ready to cross the border from Kuwait into Iraq. And we were supposed to have more time. We're always supposed to have more time, Nick. Hmm. We're doing this large armored assault vehicle column. And my company of 200 Marines and my platoon was part of that company. We're all in trucks. And as we're trying to get the truck sandbagged, protect against explosives, trying to do the last minute preparations, get radios, batteries checked and frequencies and everything. We get a word over the radio that there have been scud missiles fired towards our position. Wow. And for the first time I, I felt this deep fear and this deep, like it was real fear. And we all jumped in the holes. We had our, our mop gear, which is there were at that time, there was a big threat of chemical weapons. So mm. a gas masks, these rubber boots, these rubber suits. And I remember jumping into these holes thinking that this isn't training anymore. This is the real deal. Ben, this is where we're going to hang up the second segment. We'll be back in this moment after the break. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. 
Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, Ben, I think what we just need to hear is what happens next. I mean, the Scud missiles are flying at you. Go on. Yeah. And so for the first time, I experienced existential fear. I experienced a complete loss of control over my own destiny or a realization of that loss of control. Or maybe I could say a realization of the illusion a loss of the illusion of control. Not that we, any of us are ever really in control. The exact thing I was thinking is I was sitting in this hole and I'm looking at the Marines around me or looking at me. I was like, there could be a flash of light and that could be it. And I don't know how my parents would take it. I don't know how my friends would take it, but I have no control over what may happen in this moment. Now, one of the things about combat and war, and I don't know what it's like now, I had this very unique experience of being on the front end of modern combat in 2003 before everything was really digitized. In these wartime scenarios, in this situation, the only you don't get letters. You don't have the internet. The only information you get is word that is passed on the radio from a higher headquarters. So we immediately get into trucks and we're driving through the night through the through Hold on, southern so the, the Iraq. Scud, the muscles don't land. They miss. The missiles don't hit us. Okay. And we are now in it. We are heading north, driving north. And you know, you're like 80%, 90% sandbagged. And do you feel by the time you're in the trucks like, okay, we got everything done for the trucks that we're supposed no. to get? No, you're you're not. That's what you're saying. No. It's like, no, now we're off. Now we're in it. We're breaching the border and going into Iraq. We're driving through the desert of Iraq. I'm in a truck with maybe up to 20 Marines. Wow. I'm trying to get all of the fire support planning done using night vision goggles, looking at a map because we can't do anything with light at, at night right. as we're trying to move as fast as we can um, in this giant column up through Southern Iraq. And one of the things about the combat experience for military officers or Marines or enlisted soldiers who are going to combat for the first time is you never know how you're going to do in combat. You know, you train for it all your military career, but you don't know how you respond to this environment in which your life's in danger, the lives of the people around you, you know, and there is something, there is a physical biological fear that happens when you're being shot at. And so what I experienced in sitting in the hole, thinking a Scud missile is going to hit was really the extreme of psychological fear. There's a different kind of fear when you're hearing bullets crack over your head and you're not sure where they come from. Mm. And that is like, if you've ever been close to being in a car accident and you slam on the brakes and your heart is pounding and you're r rushed with adrenaline, mm -hmm. that's, that's an element of that biological fear. And people respond differently to that biological fear. Some people freeze. Some people don't. Some people doesn't do anything to them. And so as a leader, being able to understand the individual responses and reactions of each one of those Marines and know when they're responding differently to this biological fear, as well as trying to be present-minded about what's happening with me, was a critical thing to, to being successful in this environment. And so as we're going further north, for the first, I don't know, 36, 48 hours of just driving nonstop, sleeping in the, in these trucks, trying to sleep with everyone. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you, there's, I mean, obviously like tactically you can't stop. There's no seven 11, you know, you're not like, you <laughs> there, know, you're not pulling Nick, over. There are no seven 11 <laughs> in Southern Iraq or the, at least there weren't in 2003. I mean, you're in trucks. That is so great, man. You're in trucks. It's just nonstop movement. Yeah. Only enough to take the gas out of and fill it up again or something, right? Yeah, so the, you'd stop for refueling and everyone would take a bathroom break. 
you'd post security and then you're back on the truck. Yeah. One of a, just a side fond memory of that, if you can believe it was I realized how vivid the imagination can be. I had this playlist of tunes. I didn't actually have an iPod or anything like that, but I just had the soundtrack of music going through my head the entire journey. Wow. And just every song. And I, and I would go back, like I, I would think to myself, I really want to remember this song. And I would start thinking that song and I would hear every note and every word. And sometimes I didn't hear every word, but I would replay, you know, a verse a couple of times and I would just go to the next song. And that's what I remember from that time going through Southern Iraq. I mean, are people talking? Is there like one guy in the group who's a chatterbox? Is there, or is it just mostly silent? It's just mostly silent For every now and then. Some radio hours? communication. Yeah. That is so intense, man. I mean, of course, yeah. of course I understand it. I mean, you're all going through for those Men that got to men and women. I don't know if you if women were deployed at just that time. Men. Yeah, at that time. Yeah, just, just men in an infantry unit at that time. For those men that were able to come home, it will be the most extreme moment of their lives. How how would you not just sit in silence for thirty six hours? Yeah. But that that alone would be torturous to any person that just like me, some schmuck like me that just is like, what you're gonna put me out a truck for 36 hours and all I do is occasionally take a piss? Like, that's it? What's amazing about this moment is this is the calm moment. Yeah. This is the moment of comfort before the moment. Right. That's amazing, Ben. Okay. So we finished this grueling start to the journey and now it's time to, to get real. We're starting to reach the, the strategic points in Iraq as we move towards Baghdad. And so we approached a city called An Nazaria. We needed to secure the city um, in order to move a large number of combat forces through the city. And we're sitting there for an hour, another hour, and you know we know that they're probably engaged in combat to secure the city. And all of a sudden, you know, we start to hear helicopters. Okay, helicopters are going in to help out in the city. And I look up and I go, oh, those are CH-46s. Why would CH-46s are medevac helicopters? Hmm. And so for several hours, we watched as more and more CH-46s flew overhead and flew back. Hmm. So we knew there was a significant battle going on. And so finally, it was our moment to cross and go through this city. And this was going to be the moment in which we were likely to get engaged and have some real combat. And this is the moment where I first saw the in extremis, the horrific element of war. One thing that is psychologically nearly impossible to prepare for that again, as an officer, it's my responsibility to ensure that my young Marines and my platoon are, are prepared for it is the gruesome face of death. Mm. The, the really graphic, terrible nature of death and war. As we went through the city, we saw the dead Iraqi troops that had mm. fought to keep the Marines out. Mm. And it's incredibly humbling. I think it's, inc it's incredibly humanizing to realize that at the end of the day, we, as human beings, we all have a family somewhere that loves us, that we all have aspirations. And here, what I realized in that moment was that whoever these young men were that came to fight us, there was a family that was going to mourn them. Mm. And that in the same way that I chose to serve, something motivated them to serve. And so I never felt any hatred or animosity or dehumanizing of the combatants that, us, I just felt 
I actually felt more of a connection to them because of it. Hmm. So at some point you got to get out of the truck, right? Right. So we get north of, of Nazaria and this is where I started to, to feel the faith and the, and the presence of God in a very non-dogmatic spiritual way. You know, I, how I'm talking and how I talk about my childhood and even what I'm about to say might come across is that I'm a very devout Catholic. I'm not a good Catholic at all. And I volunteered to be a, a Catholic lay leader for my company. And my company was all one of the unique things of the reserves is that your reserve unit is very geographically concentrated. So my company were all primarily Latinx young men from the greater LA area Mm. and very Catholic concentration. We had another company from Salt Lake city that were predominantly Mormon. Hmm. And so this was our first Sunday that we had since crossing into Iraq, I believe. And we were still on the move. We stopped the trucks. We're still on the move taking like a few hour break in this massive sandstorm. And I ran from truck to truck pulling groups of Marines who wanted to have the Eucharist. And I say a makeshift mass of, you know, whatever the gospel was for that day. And we, it was all, we'd all be, we were kneeling by the side of the truck. We're almost all in a football huddle. And that to me, again, is this, deep sense of spiritual connection and what's really important about religion and our spiritual practice instead of the dogma. It's the, the comfort that this brought to the young Marines participating in it, the comfort that it it gave to me to be a vessel for communicating this and doing this service for them. And that continued because this time frame was also corresponded to Lent. And so we had this Lenten journey through Easter as we continued to journey through Iraq. Wow. I guess it was easy for you to like give up stuff for Lent, huh? <laughs> you know, it sure was. I gave up alcohol. <laughs> you give up sweets, you're giving up alcohol. You, got nothing. you guys can't get a hold of anything, right? I mean, I'm sure I gave up alcohol. <laughs> I gave up, um, yeah, gave up sweets. You gave up the United States. Uh, you know, you don't right. get to see that for a while. <laughs> I gave up showers because, you know, we're not doing showers while we're moving. Right, Like man. this either. Right. You guys, that's like a thing that you don't think about, but. Yeah. I mean, I think, of, I know how bad I smell, you know, at the end of a show, you know, like the nervous sweats of like being on stage or something. I can't imagine what, you probably don't even smell it after days. You know, each Marine had two sets of of camis. So it's not like we had too many clean clothes either. Wow, Ben. So from here, we continued to move north. And one of the things that I I wrestled with and wanted to understand and wanted to look at this experience is how is this impacting the Iraqi people? And as we went through Iraq, if we go through these little towns and villages, people would flood to the streets and they would yell, yes, Bush, no Saddam. I remember one time we we stopped in a village. We would always stop in these villages. And a member of, of my company was a native. His parents had immigrated from Iraq to Germany when he before he was born. And so he could speak Arabic with an Iraqi accent. Mm. And then there were other times where he would put on a Kuwaiti accent to scare Iraqis because mm. the Iraqis and, and Kuwaitis were enemies as a result of the first Gulf war. And so I remember we're in one of these villages and this man came up to us with a a letter written in broken English on loose leaf that at the top said, long live George Bush, long live Condoleezza Rice. Hmm. And it was a letter that he wrote to thank the American people for liberating them from Saddam. You know, I I don't want to go too much into political controversy or the long aftermath, but there was genuine hope and optimism and gratitude as we first came in. And there was one time where we stopped at a, at a village. There was like a seven year old patriarch 
he pulled us into the room that's only for men in this adobe type hamlet. And he was a Shia and Saddam had really persecuted the, the Shia Muslims. And so he had us in for tea and we're drinking tea, sitting on the floor. He said, where are you going? And we said, well, you can't really say. And he said, well, you're going to Baghdad, right? And my uh, first sergeant, who was the one who spoke Arabic, said, yeah. And he said, I want to go with you to Baghdad. And he had this old rusty rifle. And I want to kill Saddam Hussein and cut his throat and drink his blood. Wow. And he said, my three oldest sons were killed by him. And I don't know where they're buried. Wow. These types of experiences, as, a, as you're running into the Iraqis who have been persecuted by Saddam, it's wind to your backs. It is spurring you forward, knowing at least in that moment that you really genuinely felt like you were doing the right thing. Yeah, I don't want to characterize it as the right thing. Sure. No, that's um, a good and, point. And I, what I don't want to do, Nick, is is almost some moral rationalization or justification for war or for for the use of deadly force in this regard. I think it's critical that we all understand just how destructive war is mm. and that it should not be applied lightly. There are so many unintended consequences. It has multi-generational impacts for combatants and their families on both sides has multi-generational cultural impacts and national security impacts. We will be straightening out the impact of the Iraq war for decades to come, as we have been straightening it out for over a decade since 2003. So I don't want to say that I felt we were doing the right thing. I felt that we were doing an important human thing at an individual level many times, that this is making an important human impact at the time that I was there. I pray and I hope that a good human impact will continue and will emerge over there. Yeah, that feels wise. Bring me back to the chronology. So... The pace picked up, and one of the, the really tough elements of this was we were moving so fast. We were outrunning our logistical supply lines, so we were not eating. We were eating one MRE of meal ready to eat per day. We weren't sleeping. We weren't eating. This is the high-speed operational tempo to get into Baghdad, to topple Baghdad, and secure Baghdad, try to secure the country. And we ultimately culminate at the UN compound in Baghdad. And that's where my platoon ended up, my company ended up. And the really awesome fact of it was that there was amazing food. And we had a gourmet chef in our company, and he cooked some fantastic meals <laughs> at the UN compound. And we had this a little bit of an operational pause. But the other thing there, as, I, as we went to secure the building, and I found myself in the office of the head of that UN mission. And on his desk was a paperback copy of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who was imprisoned in Auschwitz in World War II, a Jewish psychologist. And this book is an absolute must read because he, Viktor Frankl had the unique insight or even burden to experience the concentration camps as a psychologist and, and take a detached point of view, but also experience it as a human in suffering. And so being immersed with the presence of death, I read this book and it gave me strength. It gave me courage. It gave me hope to continue to do whatever I could to be of service to my Marines and the Iraqi people that we were ostensibly trying to protect. Because there were plenty of moments of wondering if I had made the right choice to go, of indulgent self-pity about the hardship of the situation. 
what I found from that book was we all face our own tragedies, our own difficulties, our own experiences. And it's not how those experiences measure up to other people in comparison to, say, the person who doesn't experience anything or is doing really well. It's about our choice to face those experiences and how we face them. Ben, have you lost any of your platoon members by this point? No. Very lucky. We, we had a couple of close calls. The worst that we had was a, a few medevacs and those Marines were okay. Mm. Very lucky. You know, in, in many ways, as, as we continued to push north and we actually had a fairly heavy engagement going into Decree. And after that engagement, we patrolled through that wood to get to our next point. And there looked and faced the people that we had fought and killed. And, you know, again, I felt this sense, this lack of agency, and maybe it was a psychological rationalization on my part, but this sense of total surrender that we are, I guess the way to describe it is, you know, all of these larger political ideas or reasons or justifications or missions or anything just fades away. And my only focus is that my responsibility is to make sure everyone comes home safe. Mm. And I, my heart breaks. It really does that this entire cascade of choices leads to such conflict. We don't, it, it doesn't need to be that way. Are you in, in some sense growing closer to a God force as you're going through this, as you become more and more intertwined with a complete realization of your lack of control of the fact that every day it is life or death for you, for those next to you or for those opposing you. So the, the thing about this whole journey was that I felt the presence of God throughout. What it helped me understand was the acceptance and embrace of the worst parts of human life as part of the presence of God, if that makes any sense. That it's not just about the joy, but that this in extremis environment, that all of these things are part of this God's presence or this human experience as well. And so I came from that realization with the humility and an acceptance and an embrace and hopefully a resilience to be able to deal with the hard things that may be yet to come in life and to be a source of strength to those around me in the rest of life, in the face of illness, in the face of death, in the face of disappointment. And Nick, I got to tell you, I was really scared about coming to tell you this story. And I reached out to you when the podcast was first, you first announced the podcast and I was sitting at a 4th of July party actually. And since my experiences in Iraq, I often feel still kind of feel the sense of detachment, you know, as I look at social suburban life and not that I, I just feel like a still a sense of gravity and detachment that all of this stuff is going on and, it's almost an, an indulgence of this awareness of the good and bad coming from the war experience. And for whatever reason, I, I was walking on the street, I read your email, and I just fired off spontaneously this text of, hey, would you want to hear this story? Mm. And then you said yes, and I actually regretted sending you the, sending you the email. <laughs> and I've I've felt nervous and scared about telling the story because I haven't been back there to Iraq in 17 years. Every 
spring, every Lenten season, I think, okay, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to read some books about what actually happened. I'm going to crack open the old journals, but I haven't until today. And the reason why this podcast and this conversation compelled me to go back there was I wanted to relate this experience and share it with people so that they can face the in extremis or difficult things in their lives. And if it's a shred, an iota of benefit to them, then, you know, I, I want that to be out there for them. Ben, do you, is the war experience to some extent, like kind of like anything that humans go through, you know, you learn something and then years go by and you just sort of forget about it. I mean, you know, it doesn't feel like it could possibly be that way with war, you know, and people deal with PTSD. This is all these things that we understand as people that are civilians, we understand yeah. that the war experience is life altering and it, and it alters the soldiers lives in different ways. It's hard to imagine you not walking down the street and, still occasionally thinking about like that building looks a lot like that one building we cleared, you know, this alignment of cars reminds me of when I was in this alignment of, car. you know, just, I, I, I would imagine you'd have things like that, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it does after a certain number of years, maybe you do, it does just like anything, it grows distant. Well, that's a very insightful observation, Nick. Yeah. There, there are times where buildings or alignment of cars, Palm Springs reminds me a lot of Iraq, mm. <laughs> to be honest. Mm. Uh, it, it's very much a similar environment, but it, and it, it does get distance. And for some people, the war experience becomes their identity and it becomes the core part of who they are and their existence. For me, I think one of the big lessons out of it was how to be of humble service, how to assimilate the experience in a way that isn't about me, but just manifests itself in kindness and compassion in a very micro and human way, seeking to understand and pause and listen and maybe do something that no one ever sees or cares about except for that one person who's the recipient of it. And just to be, um, just a quiet walking example of that. Ben, when you, am I right that every one of your platoon members came home? Yeah. Wow. That's extraordinary that that first part of you that was saying that as you were being deployed, that that, that came true. But I'm sure you're grateful. How can you not be? This is, this is a, this is, even though it doesn't define you, it is such a defining element of your, of your person. But if you now could go back to that boy, you know, that 20, whatever you were, 27, 28, 29, 30 year old who was about to deploy and who was so keenly aware that it was your job to step up, do you think you'd tell him to do it again? Yeah, of course. And I actually, in a lot of my reflection following the combat experience, what I realized was it's an experience that if I could go back and do it over, I would have so many lessons and I would push myself and aspire to be better in so many ways. But I, I under no circumstance do I regret the choice. And I'm grateful for the impact that it's had in my life. And, you know, like the end of Saving Private Ryan, when Tom Hanks' character says, earn it. Like, I just want to, to live the rest of my life in a way that's humbly earning it and giving to others. Well, Ben, what a gift today. Thank you very much. What a story. 
It's emotional for me to listen to you because to listen to this story, I mean, I used to play this stuff all the time as a kid. You know, I've always yeah. been an actor since I was young, you know, play acting at this stuff, you know. Yeah. Be, being Matthew Broderick and glory, you know, always dying at the end as I tried to run up the hill. And, you know, I'm a lot older than that boy now. I, I know... Yeah, I've learned a lot over these years, but I, I, I am particularly struck by the fact that my life and my position in the world at this time in the history of civilization, of human civilization, that I am one of millions of people that have the luxury of just never having to learn to like defend where I live. What an odd thing in the scope of human history. Yeah. Homo sapiens are 70 something thousand years old. You know, hominids are 2 million years old. You know, like these, these, we as animals have been fighting other people that have been competing with us forever. And yes, you know, we've evolved into this new hyper-specialized form of competition, right? Business and economics and even the competition of the acting business, whatever. But it's so easy to take for granted that I can just play act that stuff, but I don't actually have to do it. And I get to live in your story today and I know that I will never know that and nor do I want to. You know, I don't really want to know that fear. I mean, I've had some fears. You know, I am one of those people that was in a bad car accident once. So when you yeah. said that, I was like, okay, I, I, I have access to something there. But it's nothing like what you're talking about. And I appreciate your, your guiding us into your journey and the different reflections you're having along the way. You don't seem like you, you know, live with any resentment about the fact that most people not only don't know what you went through or people like people in your position have gone through or continue to go through. No, not at all. In fact, I'm embarrassed, Nick, when people thank me for my service. Mm. I, I don't like to talk about the Iraq experience, not because it was unpleasant or traumatic, but because so many people after me went through so much worse. And I'm embarrassed when people say, thank you for your service, because now I'm a happy suburban dad. I was in harm's way for six months, maybe. There have been people who have been deploying over and over again. Mm. If you really expand it from a human perspective, there's a generation of Iraqis. There's a generation of people in Syria who are living the horrors of war face to face for a very long time. There are families whose loved ones didn't come home. There are sons and daughters who grew up without their dads or their moms, or they grew up with the, the trauma of severe injury to their mom or dad. Mm. They're the people that deserve our thanks. They're the people that we should really revere. And, you know, again, I think of the multi-generational impact of the child who lost a parent and the impact that makes in how they are parents and their life trajectory. So I, 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 there's no resentment, nothing. I just want to, I just want to elevate others in my immediate sphere and challenge myself to not fall into the day-to-day -day human stresses and try to elevate with a personal example. And I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty bad in that effort as hard as I try. Hmm. Well, Ben... What a lovely conversation, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And thank you all for listening.
Does he want to say anything? Do I want to say anything? No? Okay, <laughs> let's go.